Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today we have another episode written by Harvard University student Samar Bajaj, who you may remember wrote episode 93 on the history of the mitral valve. He's written today's episode on the history of esophageal cancer, from the early history of understanding esophageal surgery, to modern transhiatal and transthoracic techniques. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Legends of Surgery. Before we dive into the history of esophageal cancer, let's quickly discuss what the esophagus is. Now, the word esophagus comes from the Greek word oisophagos, itself a compound word. The first part is oisen, which means to carry, and the root phagos, which means to eat. So literally, what carries and eats. Sort of makes sense. And you may have come across the root word phagos before. In medicine, there's the word dysphagia, meaning difficulty swallowing, which will come up later on the podcast. And in the greater world of biology, there are bacteriophages, which are viruses that infect bacteria. And their name literally means bacteria eater. And my personal favorite, and certainly timely now in the fall or autumn if you prefer, is the word hyperphagia. Any guesses? Yes, it does mean overeating. A serious symptom in humans from a number of conditions, but it also is used to describe the fourth stage of hibernation in bears when they can eat up to 15 to 20,000 kilocalories a day. Okay, back to the esophagus. It should come as no surprise that the esophagus carries what we eat and drink from our throat to our stomach. This muscular tube is about 18 to 26 centimeters long in adults and sits behind the trachea, aka the windpipe, and is divided into three segments, cervical, thoracic, and abdominal. The cervical portion is at the top part in the neck, as cervical means neck. The thoracic part is in the chest and then passes through the diaphragm, through the esophageal hiatus and into the abdominal cavity, forming the last segment, the abdominal component, which then connects to the stomach. More on the hiatus later. Now let's talk function. At the top of the esophagus is the upper esophageal sphincter, or UES, a ring of skeletal muscle that opens the esophagus up when we swallow. The chewed mass of food, or bolus, then goes down the esophagus. Regular contractions of the smooth muscle that lines the esophagus help to push the food down into the stomach in a phenomenon called peristalsis. Now peristalsis comes from the Greek word peristaltikos, which means contracting around. Now, interestingly enough, the esophagus does not depend on gravity, which means that you can swallow food even if you are upside down, although this is not recommended. The bolus eventually makes its way down to the lower esophageal sphincter, or LES, also known as the cardiac sphincter. But unlike the UES, the LES is a ring of smooth muscle and is thus not under voluntary control. Finally, the bolus completes the first part of this epic journey and finds itself in the stomach to begin digestion in earnest. A fun side note. When astronauts first started going up into the near-zero-gravity environment of space, scientists weren't sure if the peristaltic action would be enough to allow them to eat. The first to try was Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin in April of 1961. While orbiting Earth in the Soviet Union's Vostok 1, he squeezed two toothpaste-like tubes of pureed meat and later one of chocolate into his mouth and swallowed hard. It worked. Now, given the chilly relations between the USSR and the U.S. at this time, it is doubtful this information was shared with NASA. The U.S. demonstrated that astronauts could eat in space when John Glenn, aboard the Friendship 7 in February of 1962, ate tubes of pureed beef and vegetables, applesauce, and even powdered envelopes of tang. But what about the other way? Can you burp in zero gravity? Turns out the answer is no. 
Because gas, liquids, and solids in the stomach settle out by weight, everything stays mixed in outer space. Therefore, gas alone can't move back up the esophagus. Let me quote the great Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield as he addressed this question. Quote, if you burp, you throw up in your mouth, end quote. He then added, quote, so guess where the trapped air goes, Now, speaking of things moving up the esophagus, let's cover gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, a condition when the LES does not function properly and stomach acid can make its way up the esophagus. This acid can cause heartburn, but perhaps more importantly, this acid reflux is a risk factor for cancer because the acid damages the lining of the esophagus. Other significant risk factors for esophageal cancer include obesity, smoking, and alcohol, but this list is not exhaustive. Now that we've recapped some of the anatomy and physiology, let's jump into the history of surgery of the esophagus. Several millennia ago, the ancient Egyptians described surgical management of the esophagus, as was recorded in the Edwin Smith Surgical Papyrus. In 1862, American Egyptologist and antiques dealer Edwin Smith bought the text, which had previously been sitting in a tomb in Thebes, Egypt. Smith failed to translate the text, but not for lack of trying, and after his death, the scroll found its way into the hands of fellow American Egyptologist James Henry Breasted. Breasted translated the papyrus with medical commentary from Dr. Arno Lockhart, and as it turns out, case 28 in the papyrus was titled, A Gaping Wound of the Throat Penetrating the Gullet. While this case is not immediately relevant to esophageal carcinoma, it notably described surgical treatment of the esophagus. The papyrus described how, quote, if thou examinest a man having a gaping wound in his throat, piercing through to his gullet, if he drinks water, he chokes, and it comes out of the mouth of his wound, it is greatly inflamed so that he develops fever from it. Thou shouldest draw together that wound with stitching, end quote. This case is the first known description of suturing a wound in any medical text, but, more relevant to this episode, demonstrates that surgery for the esophagus was an established practice even in 3000 BCE, when historians believe the original Edwin Smith surgical papyrus was written. Esophageal carcinoma itself was likely first mentioned more than 2,000 years ago in ancient China. They called this pathology Yi Gi, which translates to dysphagia, or difficulty swallowing, and belching, or burping. They noted that the disease was significantly more common in the elderly than the youth, and was associated with a poor patient outcome, writing that, quote, those discovered to suffer in the autumn will not live through the next summer, end quote. Pretty ominous, wouldn't you say? Now let's fast forward a bit to Arab physician Ibn Zur, otherwise known by his Latinized name, Avanzoar, who lived between 1093 and 1162 CE. Avanzoar was born in Seville in modern-day Spain. If that seems strange to you, remember that the Umayyad Caliphate conquered the Iberian Peninsula in Europe in 711 CE, and the region would remain under Arab rule to some extent until about 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, as the saying goes. If you want to learn more about the influence of the Islamic Golden Age on the history of surgery, go check out episode 45. Now getting back to Avanzor, though, he studied law, religion, and literature, as was customary during that time, before studying medicine under his father. In fact, even as a child, Avanzor got introduced to the foundational works of Greek physicians Hippocrates and Galen, even swearing the Hippocratic Oath. He began his career serving the princes of the Almoravid dynasty, but fell out of favor with the ruling family and was exiled to Marrakesh in modern-day Morocco, 
where he would spend nearly 10 years in prison. The country of Morocco, interestingly enough, actually gets its name from the city of Marrakesh, as well as the Arabic word Maghrib al-Aqsa, meaning extreme west. Avanzor would eventually return to Seville and was accepted by the new ruling family, becoming vizier, a high-ranking advisor, in the royal court. Avanzor wrote several important books, but his final book, which he wrote towards the end of his life, Al-Tasir, Book of Facilitation, was where he famously and accurately described esophageal carcinoma. He described one patient as, quote, beginning with mild pain and difficulty swallowing and going on gradually to its complete prevention, end quote. Avanzor suggested putting a metal cannula or tube down the throat of those who were unable to swallow in order to give food. Furthermore, thinking that the stomach could attract nutrients from anywhere in the digestive tract, Avanzor also posited giving an enema with milk, eggs, and gruel through the rectum, likely with little success. Several Renaissance physicians, such as Jean Fernel of France and Vulture Coiter of Holland, would document more cases of esophageal cancer. Not notably, British physician John Casobon had esophageal carcinoma and reported his symptoms. He described how, quote, At dinner, I was almost choked by swallowing a bit of a roasted mutton, which, as I thought, stuck in the passage about the mouth of the stomach. But it suffered nothing to go down, and the stomach threw all up, end quote. Ultimately, Casobon could get nutrition from liquids only, leading him to become very faint and weak. The physicians thought the disease incurable for the longest time, so any care given was really only palliative. Palliative, interestingly enough, comes from the medieval Latin word palliativus, which means under cloak or covert. Now, the best reason I found to explain this is that palliative care cloaks or masks the patient's pain. But this palliation paradigm, however, would change with Adolf Kussmaul. Kussmaul was born in 1822 to a German army physician and studied medicine at the University of Heidelberg. Following in his father's footsteps, Adolf served in the German-Danish War before going back to complete his MD under Rudolf Virchow at the University of Würzburg. You may know Virchow's famous cell theory, which essentially said that the cell is the basic unit of structure and organization of organisms, all organisms are composed of one or more cells, and all cells come from pre-existing cells. Now, after getting his doctorate, Kuzma had an illustrious career. He described the paradoxical increase in jugular venous pressure when breathing in, Kuzma's sign, and deep labored breathing due to acidosis, Kuzma's breathing. More relevantly to this episode, though, Kuzma was the first to visualize the esophagus by performing the first esophagoscopy in 1868. Kuzma built on the work of French physician Antonin de Sormeau, who 15 years prior used a new instrument called l'endoscope, or the endoscope, to diagnose and treat people's urological conditions. Through endoscopy, de Sormo performed operations such as excising a urethral papilloma and cauterization for gonorrhea. Gonorrhea actually gets its name from the Greek words gonos and rho, meaning seed and flow respectively, because the Greeks thought that the discharge of pus that accompanies this STD was semen. In any case, Cousmont modified de Sormo's device, creating a 47-centimeter-long rigid endoscope that used gas light source that was shined through the device through mirrors for illumination. Passing an endoscope through the esophagus was significantly more complicated than passing it through the urethra, so Cousmont enlisted the help of a professional sword swallower who could tolerate this device being put down his throat. 
With this setup, Kuzma was the first to visualize the esophagus and the fundus, which is the upper part of the stomach. Now before we move on, let's take a small detour to talk about sword swallowers. Sword swallowing first started in India some 4,000 years ago, where people would do it alongside walking on hot coals and charming snakes to show their invulnerability and connection with the gods. Sword swallowing has since spread throughout the world, but how do people do this death-defying feat? In order to swallow a sword, performers tilt their heads back to hyperextend their neck, allowing their mouths to lie in a straight line with their throat. They then relax their throat muscles, something that requires a lot of practice, so don't try this at home, and are able to pass the sword through their mouth, pharynx, upper esophageal sphincter, and then into the esophagus. The sword straightens the esophagus as it goes down, and if long enough, can also go past the LES and into the stomach. Pretty dangerous, but also pretty impressive, right? Okay, back to surgery. Kusmal performed the first esophagoscopy, an important diagnostic and therapeutic milestone, which paved the way for his son-in-law, Vincent Cerny, to do the first successful esophagectomy. So who is Cerny? He was born in Bohemia in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and began studying medicine in Prague before transferring to Vienna to complete his studies. Two years later, Cerny became an assistant to Christian Billroth, who was the first to resect an anastomose, the cervical esophagus in dogs, pioneering the surgical technique in 1871. Seven years later, Cerny did the first successful resection of the cervical esophagus in a human. Remember, the part of the top of the esophagus in the neck. Specifically, his patient was a 51-year-old woman who had been suffering from severe dysphagia. Making an incision along the anterior side of the sternocleidomastoid muscle, which is in the neck, Cerny made his way to the esophagus and dissected the patient's tumor out. Noting the experience, Cerny wrote that, quote, in a case of annular carcinoma of the esophagus, which caused stricture that would not admit an esophageal sound, which is an instrument used to dilate structures, I resected a piece six centimeters of the entire wall of the esophagus. The lower end of the esophagus was sewn into the neck. Reconstructing the GI tract was still something of the future, so Cerny passed a tube through the wound into the esophagus in order to give nourishment. Cerny's patient survived for over a year, dying because the cancer recurred. Other cervical esophageal resections would follow, but the rest of the esophagus remained elusive. That is, until the work of Aldwin von Atsch and Franz Torek. Alwin von Atsch was a German postdoctoral student in Munich who described the first esophagectomy without thoracotomy, or cutting into the chest, in his 1913 dissertation. Atsch described how he categorically attempted every described technique of intrathoracic esophageal resection in dogs but failed every single time. Thus, he resolved to avoid the thorax entirely. After 54 experiments in dogs, he found himself operating on a 55-year-old woman. She presented with weight loss and dysphagia. Esophageal cancer was confirmed with esophagoscopy. Atch made a subcostal incision, meaning below the ribs, and found the tumor at the gastroesophageal junction. After freeing up the cervical esophagus to allow for more traction, Atch moved the patient's gastroesophageal junction and proximal stomach, tying off and cutting across the esophagus right above the tumor. He then made a gastrostomy, so that the patient could be fed through a rubber tube directly into her stomach. Remember, a gastrostomy is a surgical opening into the stomach. Now, this surgery was the first transhiatal esophagectomy performed, meaning cutting across the esophagus at the hiatus 
from an abdominal incision, albeit without reconnecting the remaining esophagus back to the stomach, which is customary today. Before we continue, let's take a second to talk a little bit more about the esophageal hiatus. And that means looking at the anatomy of the diaphragm. Now, diaphragma means partition in Greek, which makes sense as it is a sheet of skeletal muscle that separates the thorax or chest and abdominal cavities. There are three large openings within it, the aortic hiatus, the esophageal hiatus, and the caval opening to allow the aorta, esophagus, and inferior vena cava respectively to pass from the chest to the abdomen. Hiatus is Latin for opening or gap, which is fitting considering the common use of the word hiatus, meaning a short pause or break from something such as work. I never really thought about that connection prior to this episode. Now you may have heard of a hiatal hernia, which is when contents of the abdominal cavity, usually the stomach, herniate through the esophageal diaphragm into the chest. This can either be congenital, meaning a birth defect, or developed later in life. These latter ones are often subclassified into either a sliding hernia, in which the body of the stomach moves up into the chest, and a paraesophageal hernia, where an abdominal organ moves beside the esophagus. The main recognized symptom is actually reflux, which we've talked about earlier. Surgical treatment is possible, but controversial and a big topic on its own, so we won't tackle that now. Instead, let's conclude this little hiatus from our main topic, pun very much intended, to cover three fun facts about the diaphragm. The main innervation of the diaphragm is by the phrenic nerve, so-called from the Greek word phren, meaning diaphragm, which is formed from the cervical nerves C3, 4, and 5. Med students listening may recall the rhyme, C3, 4, and 5 keeps the diaphragm alive. But that's not the interesting part. Cervical nerves 3, 4, and 5 also innervate the shoulder. That's why after laparoscopic surgery, some patients complain of shoulder pain. This may be due to residual gas in the abdomen irritating the diaphragm and patients getting referred pain in their shoulder. Oh. All right, now let's talk about hiccups. This is essentially an involuntary contraction of the diaphragm, almost like a rhythmic spasm of the diaphragm muscle. The common short-lived ones we're all familiar with are postulated to be due to irritation of the diaphragm or the phrenic nerve, but especially for longer attacks, other causes such as neurological lesions, typically in the brainstem, or metabolic disorders can be the cause, among other things. The Guinness World Record holder for the longest attack of hiccups is an American named Charles Osborne. Now take a second to guess how long. Okay, ready? Mr. Osborne had the hiccups from 1922 to 1990, a period of 68 years. Now finally, did you know that the cut of beef known as the hanger steak is actually from the diaphragm of the cow? Originally called the butcher steak because butchers would keep it for themselves, it is now a prized cut for both its tenderness and flavor. Now apologies to any vegans or vegetarians listening out there. All right, now where were we? Yes, Alwyn Van Atch had just performed the world's first trans-hiatal esophagectomy. It was a successful operation, However, Atch's patient died 17 days after the surgery, and the next two patients he operated on both died four days post-op. So let's shift to the other 1913 esophageal surgery pioneer, Franz Torek. Torek was born in Germany in 1861, but his parents fled Germany when he was 11, immigrating to the U.S. Specifically, they were fleeing Otto von Bismarck's effort to unify Germany. An interesting fact about Otto von Bismarck, he predicted World War I, saying in 1888 that, quote, 
One day the Great European War will come out of some damn foolish thing in the Balkans, end quote. Twenty-six years later, with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary, his prediction would prove to be correct. Another interesting fact about Bismarck, he was called the Iron Chancellor because he gave a speech to the Prussian parliament calling for a massive military buildup to unite Germany through blood and iron. No wonder Torx's parents left Germany. Now Franz attended the College of the City of New York for his undergraduate studies before going to Columbia for medical school. A true New Yorker, he spent the rest of his life in the state practicing at the German hospital, which is now known as Lenox Hill Hospital. He was a terrific general surgeon, coming up with an operation for testicles that did not descend at birth, known as the Keatley toric operation, and was the first to report a resection of an intrathoracic metastatic adenocarcinoma following hysterectomy. A mouthful, I know. But one of his most important contributions to the field was his performing the first transthoracic esophagectomy, which was important because nobody had previously dared to enter the thorax for esophageal cancer surgery. Atch's approach, as you will remember, was transhiatal after all. In fact, thoracic surgery pioneer Ernst Sauerbruch ominously declared that cancers in the thoracic esophagus could not be operated on. But Torek thought differently. His patient was a 67-year-old woman who had worsening dysphagia and weight loss. Torek gave his patient a bismuth swallow in order to visualize the esophagus, which confirmed a tumor, specifically squamous cell carcinoma in this case, closing up the esophagus and causing her symptoms. And a quick side note, the bismuth swallow would largely be replaced by the barium swallow, as first introduced by radiologist Walter Cannon. But back to Torek. He made a posterolateral thoracotomy and divided ribs 4 through 7 at their tubercles, meaning a cut in the side of the chest, towards the back, and through the ribs. Torek found the esophageal tumor sitting precariously underneath the aortic arch and had to dissect the branches of the vagus nerve off the esophagus, but thankfully the patient did not experience any changes to her pulse. Remember the vagus nerve, as one of its many functions, can affect heart rate. Torek was also able to separate the tumor from other critical structures before transecting or cutting across the esophagus above the diaphragm and then above the tumor to remove it from the body. Towards the end of the procedure, he tunneled the remaining proximal cervical or top part of the esophagus subcutaneously, meaning right under the skin, in the anterior chest wall. He did that so he could make an incision in the esophagus and attach a rubber tube connecting the proximal esophagus all the way down to an incision in the stomach that he had previously made. Interestingly enough, this GI tract reconstruction or gastrostomy tube meant that the patient had a tube connecting her esophagus to her stomach sitting outside her body. The first eight days saw her being fed through the G-tube, but afterwards she was able to eat orally with the food getting to her stomach via the tube, and she would go on to survive for 13 years after the operation. A transthoracic esophagectomy would become increasingly popular, but without antibiotics, the mortality rate was relatively high. So let's meet George Turner, who continued the transhiatal tradition established by Atch. Turner was born in Tynemouth in the United Kingdom in 1877 and attended private school as a young boy before going to the University of Durham for medical school. During World War I, he served with the Royal Army Corps, traveling to Alexandria, Egypt, as well as Basra and Amara in Iraq. Returning, he made his way up to the chair of surgery at his alma mater. At the University of Durham in 1933, Turner operated on a 58-year-old minor 
who had had dysphagia for eight weeks. Specifically, solid foods would stick in his neck, not being able to move past his breastbone. Things had to be the consistency of porridge to be able to get through. Indeed, esophageal carcinoma in the mid-esophagus was diagnosed with barium swallow radiography. Now, Turner first did a gastrostomy to check for metastases in the liver and stomach. Finding none, he decided he would perform the actual esophagectomy. He made a median abdominal incision, meaning a vertical cut through the midline of the abdomen, separating the liver from the diaphragm and exposing the abdominal esophagus. Now, specifically, he used blunt dissection, or in other words, his fingers, to mobilize the abdominal esophagus. Turner put his next step in an interesting way. Quote, Having accomplished as much as possible by this route, the venue was changed to the neck. End quote. Indeed, he moved to the neck, making a separate incision dividing the sternocleidomastoid muscle to expose the cervical esophagus. Feeling the upper part of the tumor from this incision, Turner proceeded to transect the cervical esophagus low in the neck with cautery before closing his neck incision. Returning to the abdomen, he used more blunt dissection to separate the esophagus from the surrounding structures it was attached to. He cut the lower esophagus at the cardia, or the top part of the stomach, before burying the remaining esophageal stump into the stomach. Turner removed the patient's esophagus through the abdomen and four weeks later reconstructed the GI tract using a skin flap. Inspired by Danish surgeon Niles Rovsing, who you may know from Rovsing's sign for appendicitis, he took skin from the front of the chest and used it to create a tube, which was then connected to the jejunum, the second part of the small bowel. The patient needed to be operated on a couple of times afterward because of anastomotic leaks, but the minor was able to eat through the mouth by the 206th post-operative day. Specifically, three slices of bread and butter with a poached egg, half a pint of tea, and two pears. Quite the meal to come back to. A quick side note, I didn't initially state his full name, which is George Gray Turner. If that rings a bell, it may be because of the eponymously named Gray Turner sign, which is bruising on the flanks, indicating a retroperitoneal or behind-the-abdominal cavity bleeding. When I was a medical student, I always assumed that was named after two people. Anyways. Unfortunately, transhiatal esophagectomy did not take off and was mostly forsaken for about 40 years after Turner. Technological advances made the transthoracic approach safer, and surgeons were worried that the transhiatal approach might open the door to uncontrollable bleeding. But it would be Americans Mark Oranger and Herbert Sloan from the University of Michigan who brought transhiatal esophagectomy back to prominence in 1978. They described their experience performing 26 such operations, reconstructing the GI tract by pulling up the stomach in 19 patients, and doing a left colon interposition graft in the remaining seven. In other words, they used a section of the colon to serve as the esophagus. They had a 19% mortality rate, but the point Oranger and Sloan were trying to make was that the transhiatal approach was safe and effective. In 2007, Oranger described his experience doing thousands of transhiatal esophagectomies, which had a much lower mortality rate at 3%. Now let's travel back to Japan in the first half of the 20th century and focus on the predominant approach for treating esophageal carcinoma, the transthoracic route. Japanese surgeon Toru Osawa was born in 1882 and graduated from Kyoto Imperial University in 1921. Several years later, in 1929, Osawa made history, being the first to successfully anastomose or reconnect the intrathoracic esophagus and the digestive tract together. 
His patient was a 52-year-old male who had been vomiting frequently for the past two months and was severely malnourished, and he was diagnosed with gastric cancer. In order to remove the patient's cancer, Osawa needed to create a wide operating field, so he opened the thoracic cavity through the seventh intercostal space, or space between the ribs, before making his thoracoabdominal incision. Osawa then performed a total gastrectomy, meaning removal of the stomach, and resected a portion of the lower esophagus before connecting the esophagus to the jejunum of the small intestine in an end-to-side anastomosis. The patient recovered well and began to eat 11 days after the surgery and back to their normal diet 21 days post-op. In 1933, Osawa reported on performing a transthoracic resection of the thoracic esophagus with immediate GI tract reconstruction in 18 patients, with 8 patients surviving. Osawa's contributions, however, were virtually unknown to the West for some years, with one source attributing this to World War II preventing scientific communication between the countries. So let's move over to the U.S. and Samuel Marshall. In 1937, a 46-year-old man came to the Leahy Clinic in Burlington, Massachusetts with pain in his upper abdomen, which radiated to his back when swallowing solid food. As a result, he had restricted himself to soft foods and liquids and lost a lot of weight. With an x-ray and a biopsy through an esophagoscope, Marshall diagnosed the man with adenocarcinoma and took him to the operating room. Marshall put the patient in the left lateral position, a.k.a. lying down on his left side, before making an infrascapular incision, meaning below the scapula. Marshall then exposed the esophagus and opened the diaphragm extending from the esophageal hiatus, a.k.a. the diaphragm opening through which the esophagus passes through. Marshall brought the stomach into the thoracic cavity before clamping the stomach and esophagus and excising the tumor between the clamps. He closed the open end of the stomach before maintaining esophageal gastric continuity by connecting the esophageal stump to the anterior wall of the stomach at the fundus. The result was that part of the stomach was in the thoracic cavity. However, Marshall was sure to close the diaphragm incision in order to avoid a potential hernia. Marshall's patient had a challenging postoperative course, needing continuous bronchoscopies to remove mucus that was accumulating in his airway. The patient's wound even ruptured out of nowhere. He was eventually discharged, but continued to have trouble swallowing as he was suffering from esophagitis. In fact, Marshall had to dilate the patient's esophagus when it had become only one centimeter in diameter upon entering the stomach to help him swallow more easily. Now, Marshall could never confirm it, but he suspected that the patient had a cancer recurrence. Unfortunately, it is not Marshall that gets credit for the first resection of thoracic esophageal cancer with immediate intrathoracic esophageal gastrostomy, meaning reconnecting the GI tract, in the U.S. That credit goes to surgeons William Adams and Dallas Femister from the University of Chicago, who performed a similar procedure to Marshall six months later. Adams was born in Pike Township, Iowa in 1902, getting his MD from the State University of Iowa, while Femister was born in Carbondale, Illinois, 20 years earlier in 1882 and earned his MD from Rush Medical College. Eventually, both landed at the University of Chicago, which opened its own hospital in 1927. Femister was recruited to establish the Department of Surgery at the University of Chicago, and Adams started with the original group of residents. Adams and Femister practiced extensively in dogs, finding that, quote, leakage and infection occurred less frequently when the cardiac opening was closed, remember the cardia is the top part of the stomach, and an end-to-side anastomosis was made between the esophagus and the fundus of the stomach, end quote. 
Animal studies gave Adams and Femister the confidence to attempt the procedure in humans with their first patient being a 53-year-old woman with, you guessed it, dysphagia and weight loss. The patient complained that food would stick down near her stomach and would go no further. A barium swallow showed esophageal narrowing six centimeters above the gastroesophageal junction that they were confident indicated cancer. Femister entered the left chest along the eighth rib and the pleural cavity, finding the tumor in the lower esophagus. They put a hemostat, or clamp, on the phrenic nerve to keep the diaphragm from moving. Remember, C345 keeps the diaphragm alive. Before making a two-inch incision into the esophageal hiatus. That incision helped Femister mobilize the esophagus and the cardiac end of the stomach as well as pull the stomach up. They resected the tumor, closed the gastric end, and connected the esophageal stump to the fundus of the stomach with a two-layer anastomosis. From their experience in dogs, they were careful to not put too much tension on this anastomosis to ensure the best outcome. Although the operations were technically speaking very similar to Marshall's, the postoperative course could not have been more different. Adams and Femister's patient had a rather uneventful recovery and survived for more than 10 years post-op. Now, if you've ever heard transthoracic esophagectomy called the Ivor Lewis esophagectomy, you may be confused at the moment as to why it's not called the Marshall esophagectomy or Adams and Femister esophagectomy. Well, to understand that, let's travel across the pond to Wales in the United Kingdom. Ivor Lewis was born in the Welsh village of Landesant in 1895. His father was a farmer but died when Lewis was still a boy. Lewis's mother wanted him to go into the ministry, but an experience in the hospital with an appendiceal abscess and peritonitis, which is an inflammation of the peritoneum, the layer that surrounds the abdominal organs, convinced Lewis to head towards medicine instead. After doing his preclinical work at the University College Cardiff, Lewis got his MBBS at University College Hospital in London. Lewis returned to Wales and earned his MD shortly thereafter, but it would be at North Middlesex Hospital where he would do the procedure to which his name is indelibly linked. Everyone before Lewis had approached the esophagus from the left side. Lewis decided to go about it from the right side and tackle a tumor in the middle third of the esophagus. In 1944, Ivor Lewis first utilized the right-sided approach on a 66-year-old metal polish worker, reporting on it a year later in 1945 and more extensively in his 1946 Hunterian lecture, where he discussed seven case reports that charted his path to the right-sided approach. He wrote that the right transpleural, or meaning across the space containing the right lung, approach, offered better accessibility for the upper two-thirds of the thoracic esophagus, in part because, quote, the aortic arch, and to a large extent the descending aorta, instead of being an obstacle, becomes a safety barrier between the surgeon and the other pleural cavity. He described the operation as divided into two stages. The first stage was the abdominal procedure to mobilize the stomach and make a jejunostomy to keep the patient fed, meaning putting a tube into the jejunum. The second stage was the thoracic procedure where, after making a right thoracotomy, he dissected the esophagus down to the hiatus pulled the stomach up into the thoracic cavity, and resected the tumor out. Like with Adams and Femister, Lewis then connected the esophagus to the patient's stomach in an end-to-side anastomosis. He described the anastomosis as suturing the unsuturable. The McEwen esophagectomy is probably the other esophagectomy you may have heard about. Kenneth McEwen did the first such operation in 1961, but fully reported on his technique 15 years later in 1976. 
The operation is very similar to the Ivor Lewis esophagectomy with the abdominal approach to mobilize the stomach and esophagus and the right thoracotomy to further mobilize the esophagus. However, the added step that McEwen created and why it's called the three-staged or three-hole esophagectomy is that he also did a cervical incision. One of the significant issues with the esophagogastrostomy is the risk of an intrathoracic anastomotic leak. So the McEwen procedure allows for the anastomosis to be performed in the neck area where it would be much easier to manage a leak. Essentially, McEwen pulled the thoracic esophagus up into the neck in order to resect the tumor. This procedure is less popular than the Ivor Lewis one, but is still commonly performed. So in some ways, it has almost come full circle. The first esophageal cancer surgeries were performed only in the cervical esophagus because surgeons could not and would not dare operate in the thorax. Ironically, with the McEwen esophagectomy, cancers in the thoracic esophagus are brought into the cervical region. Perhaps this is why we study the history of surgery. Looking backward, we may be able to devise ways to look forward. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Please feel free to rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes. Leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on this podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening.